We wanted you to see a portion of what our church does in the community and around the world in anticipation of time together today around God's Word. And I'd invite you to take a Bible, please, this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah is about two-thirds of the way through Scripture. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you'll find there's one in the pew rack in front of you. And I say take it out and take it home. We'd be glad if you would have that as a gift from us to you today, all right? While you're looking for Isaiah chapter 54, let me start by telling you um, something occurred to me on Tuesday, or happened to me on Tuesday, uh, just part of kind of like my everyday day. I had a series of appointments throughout the morning, and then I had an an afternoon appointment that I was scheduled to be at across town uh, mid-afternoon, and there was an hour in between when the appointments here and this building ended and had to be across town. So that hour, I thought, man, it's 20, 25 minutes across town. And I got to drive by the lake. I'm going to go by the lake and I'm going to just sit at the edge of the lake somewhere and pray. And I took my prayer journal. And as I, as I left the building, though, and got in the car, it began to pour rain. And it was quite cold already. And it was that first day when, you know, things got cold this past week. And so I got down to the lake and it was way too cold. Oh, it was pouring rain. So I actually got a blanket out of the back of the van and... Um, wrapped it around my shoulders because I only had a shirt on and I went and, and sat under a pavilion and looked out over the lake and I prayed for our community and prayed about the message I'm bringing to you today. And I took that photo with my phone and guys, kill the house lights for just a minute if you can, please. Uh, to show you, I mean, I'm a long way from the water and you can see how heavy it was raining just by the water drops on the water itself. You can see that, man, it was coming down hard and I'm, I'm kind of sitting under the, the uh, pavilion there just contemplating all this water and the rain. Do we need any more water in the lake and that sort of stuff? And, and this thought occurred to me. You know, God, this water here on this lake, it, um, it, it impacts a lot of people. Virtually everybody in the city of Decatur uses it for drinking water once it's been treated and so forth. Uh, the industries in town, which employ thousands of people, they use it. Those of us, people within the church here today who maybe don't live in the city, you live in the smaller communities and maybe your drinking water doesn't come from the lake, but the water that was coming down out of the sky was going to provide your reservoir with water. And I was just thinking, oh Lord, all this water in front of me and it's coming down, it's touching everybody in this community today. And this was my prayer. Let all who touch this water, may they seek you and find you through Jesus Christ, because it's surely needed in our community. If you know the story of our community, you know that sometimes Decatur and our portion of central Illinois is not painted in always the best way. For example, uh, just looking at census figures alone, we've done some studies of um, people close to First Christian Church. And we've contacted, uh, there are firms that will help us do this, and we had a firm, we contracted a firm a few months ago to help us look at this, that in 1990, within 15 miles of our building today, there were 121,000 people who lived within 15 miles of the building. We're told that by the the year 2017, it's going to be at 112,000, and by 2024, 10 years out from now, it's going to be significantly less than that, probably down about 100,000 people. We've gone from having three high schools to two high schools. We've seen 
Firestone shut down. We've seen, you know, Caterpillar and, and the way in which it goes up and down. And if you work for Cat, we're really glad when it goes up, of course, or any of the other major industries in town. We've seen jobs leave the city. And so consequently, you, you know, probably in addition to declining population in the city because of jobs, uh, we here in Decatur, Macon County, we, are, we face the most unemployment in the whole state. <laughs> and Illinois is not doing all that great in, <laughs> compared to other states. So when in, although employment has come up a little bit in the last few months, in the city as a whole though, we still face the greatest unemployment in all of Illinois. Man, Wayne, I'm so glad you got up to preach today. This is really... <laughs> it will be, I promise you, but we're starting... I'll tell you why I'm starting this way, because when Leslie and I moved to town in January of 1994, we came here with great hopes and great dreams and great aspirations of what God might do in our lives and through our lives with the people called First Christian Church, and we've seen that happen, and this has been the ride of our lives. I couldn't have asked for a better life in terms of what we've done in the last 20 years. But we were stunned and frankly offended by the way in which many Decaturites think of themselves when we collectively use this language, when people refer to Decatur as the armpit of central Illinois. You ever heard that statement? Does that, does that bother anybody else? It's like, are you kidding me? I live here, and I don't live in the armpit of the, <laughs> I don't wanna live in any armpit, believe you me. When people refer to our community that way, I find it both offensive, and incredibly tragic. Because to me, it flies in the face of who we are as people before God. And this is where it gets better. We may start out bad this morning, but I want to tell you, that's not who we are in the face of God. In the eyes of God, we are his children. And if we know him in Jesus Christ, we're spending eternity with him. And when we call ourselves the armpit of central Illinois, we are disagreeing with who, how God views us. Because the people of Decatur have as much worth as the people of Champaign or Bloomington or Springfield or Chicago or St. Louis or San Diego or Maasai Land. We are people of worth. We are people of value. We are people who Jesus died for. We are people who Jesus rose for. And we are the people, if we know Christ, who get to spend eternity with him. And there is no way you should refer to those kinds of people as the armpit of central Illinois. That's the introduction to my sermon. Because I'm coming to you today on behalf of the staff and leadership teams of the church with um, a new view of what we think First Christian Church wants us to do, pardon me, what God wants First Christian Church to do. And so usually we have um, a sermon that's very exegetical in its approach. We'll take a passage of scripture and unpack it for you and really look at it with some depth. Today though, instead of doing that, I want to have a chat with you using Isaiah 54 as the background, but a chat about the future of our congregation as the leadership teams have figured it out and as we've been guided by both scripture and the Holy Spirit. And I'll set it up this way. Many of you know that in February, March, and April of this year, Leslie and I took a three-month sabbatical. Uh, it's part of the plan that we have for pastoral staff here at the church that every five years, Pastors are to go away for three months and retool, rethink, pray, kind of get ready for another season of ministry. 
When we came back from that sabbatical, we came back and, and I presented a six or seven week series really detailing our personal experience at the base of the Western Wall in Jerusalem as we were there for a month. We weren't at the wall for a month, but we were in Israel for a month. And I talked to you about how we experienced God's presence there in a powerful way. And I used this verbiage in every sermon that series that the presence of God, see if this sounds familiar, used to be 65, up the, up 65 feet up the top of that wall and a few feet over. Do you remember that verbiage? And that, that what was incredibly profound to me personally was that God's presence was no longer limited to that space above the wall but it was available to all people. And we talked about that for a lot of weeks in various aspects of that. And that was certainly a personal response to the sabbatical. But in many ways, that was not the extent of that sabbatical and that was not the biggest takeaway. I'm bringing to you the biggest takeaway today. See, about 18 months prior to that, in, a, in an elders meeting where elders and pastors were gathered together, this question was posed. What's the church called First Christian Church going to look like in, say, 10 to 25 years from now. Many of us in that room had been in leadership within that circle for some 15 to 20 years. There were new, younger people in the room who were in their 20s and 30s who we say, hey, we want to mentor you and we want to pass off the baton to you in 10 or 15 years from now. Can we start training you up now? And as that group gathered, the question was, what's this place going to look like in 10 years, in 20 years from now? What's it going to look like when those of us who are in our 50s pass off the baton? It's a profound question that um, initiated a series of travels on my part. Pastor Brian went with me and we visited a number of different places around the country, went up to Tacoma and Seattle. We looked at a church up there that meets in homes and they have thousands of people. They never do get together as all one group like we are here today. We looked at a church over in Ohio that's doing some really cool things in the community over there. We looked at a church up in Chicago where they have multi-sites and they have huge gatherings of 15,000, 20,000 people a weekend. And we just look at what kind of models of church are out there besides the way in which we do it. And so I, I, I came with 18 months of study into the sabbatical with the idea, during the sabbatical, Wayne, seek God for the future of our church. So we went to Israel. We came back from Israel. Leslie went back to work. And I had another week yet before I was going to be in the pulpit. And so I went down to Kentucky on the Kentucky-Tennessee border, and I spent a week in prayer and seclusion and study down there. And the result of all of that last 24 months is in front of you today. Isaiah 54 speaks to the issue very, very well. Isaiah 54, verse 2 says this, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. And we've seen that happen here at First Christian Church over the years. We, you know, years ago we were a church of less than 200 people. We have more people in the room just in this service alone right now today, let alone doing it four times this weekend. I mean, so we were a small church and we, we, we've pushed the tent out on a regular basis and seen people show up. You'll spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dis dispossess nations and settle in desolate cities. I would say that Decatur is not a desolate city, but sometimes people refer to it that way. How else could you use nice language to describe the armpit of central Illinois? Isn't that pretty desolate? Don't be afraid. You won't be put to shame. Don't fear disgrace. You won't be humiliated. You'll forget the shame of your youth and remember no more your reproach. I want to tell you, friends, 
That's God's word for the people of First Christian Church in this last quarter of 2014. That God is calling us to expand our lives. God is calling us to expand our ministries. God is calling us to expand our hopes for a larger vision, a larger plan. And we are to make room. We are to make room for many more people. And when I say many more people, I mean many, many, many more people. And this is not a prelude today to some building program. I'm not talking about buildings. I'm talking about people. And about the needs within our community. See if this will help you understand it. As we looked at various aspects and have been spent the last 24 months in study, if you take significant groups of population and you look at them historically about how they go from this thinking to that thinking, from good thinking to poor thinking, Germany being case point, from how, how was it that they accepted Nazism? Or if you've got, which is from good to bad thinking, right? Or from nations that went from bad thinking to good thinking, how did, how, how did, how did leaders cause those nations to change so quickly? Truth of the matter, historically, if you can get 13% of the people of a particular population to buy into an idea, then the whole population will very quickly soon thereafter follow. In other words, it's not a case of getting 13% of the leaders to buy in. Just 13% of the population will then spread the idea and it will grow like wildfire. We're told that within years ahead, there'll be some approximately 112, more like 100,000 people within a 15-mile radius of First Christian Church. But if you go with 112, even though it's no, we know it's going to be smaller than that, if you look at 112,000 people and you multiply it by that 13%, you come up with a figure of 14,560. You go, well, what's that got to do? Well, what's that got to do with who we are? Well, I would suggest, friends, that if that many people live around our, our church, is there any way that we could influence them to think better of themselves and to be more understanding of God's view of them and for them to understand that, in fact, that this is a place of value and that they are people of value? How could we get that thinking to rule the day within our community? We've only got to reach 13% of them, and they'll change the thinking of everybody else. In other words, we've got to convince 14,560 people that God loves them. I've got some good news for you, friends. In the last year alone, 4,500 people have walked through the doors of this church. Truth. We have their names or their addresses. 4,500 different individuals have sat in the pews where you're sitting today. So, basically, we only have to reach 10,000 people. If we can, if we can, if we can reach another 10,000 people, we've spoken to 13% of the, of the community. Now, I'm, I'm making light of it, but why not? Why not? Let me see if I can come at this from a different angle. In our travels that Brian and I have had, along with some others that I've had, where I've got to hang out with some very, very wise people all across the country that have led churches far beyond where we are today. Men, they're all men who were, are older in ministry than I am. Guys who are in their late 60s, going to their 70s, who've led churches to be 30 and 40,000 strong. Uh, for some reason or other, they decided to take me under their wings in the last couple of years, and I've been invited to these roundtable discussions. It's been a fascinating experience, and I don't know exactly how it all came about, but it's been a godsend. And in each of these discussions, and there have been many of them, they, they've said, 
invariably, how old are you, Wayne? And, you know, at the point, I was either 55, I've turned 56 now. He smiled at me and he said, Wayne, at 56 years of age, at 55 years of age, you got the next 10, 15 years of ministry that are the best years of ministry that you've ever had as long as you keep your nose clean. I have that sense that the most influencing years of my ministry are in front of me from a career. If you can, can you hear that from a professional career point of view? Not that I'm trying to push that, but just where I am and, and what God's done in me and what I've learned and what I've experienced in terms of who I am today, that the best is in front of me as long as I do live the way that God would call me to live. And then you add to that that we could reach maybe 14,000 people, that this is a good season in Wayne's ministry, that, well, add that to this. Think about the profile of our congregation in the community around us. I don't know that we're the largest church in the city, but certainly one of the larger. And certainly we have a profile that is, in many ways, the envy of many. Look at this building, isn't it? It's gorgeous. It is. We, we've been blessed with this. We have, we have a history of 180 years of ministry in this community. We have, you know, the city council recently asked BJ to come and make a presentation on how we do an adopter block because they are so enamored with it and they want other churches to try that. The, the, the school board, I often get calls from the members of the, of the school district saying, hey, can you, can you arrange for other churches to do what you're doing at Parsons School? The president of the park board came to me um, about two years ago and said, Wayne, what you guys are doing in the park? Can you get other churches to follow that model? If the leaders of the city are coming to us and saying that, and then you look at what the the profile we have on the radio, if you will, and just the numbers of people that we have in this community who belong to this church, we have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of people power. We have a lot of prayer power. If all of us... We're interceders and praying, bringing the needs of our city before God. What could happen? We have a lot of resources. Scripture speaks to those of us who have a lot of resources. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus was quite straight up. He said, from everyone who has been given much, well, much, we have a lot of much. From everyone who has been given much, much more will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I believe God is asking us for more. God's asking us to stretch out the sides of the tent and make room for many, many more people. And I believe that before this is about First Christian Church or Wayne Kent's career or anything like that, trust me, this is about a spirit-led stewardship response to all that God has given us. To all the resources that we have, this is about God calling us to leverage all of that, that intangible stuff that we have, and the assets we have in real dollars or real buildings or whatever, to leverage all of that for the needs of our community. If people come to Christ through what I'm bringing to you today and in the weeks ahead, if people come to Christ and they end up at other churches, I'm cool with that. Trust me, I really am. This is about God's kingdom long before it's about buildings or cash flow or numbers of people at First Christian Church. So here's what I want you to hear, what we are suggesting that we need to reach for. We would like to propose that in the next 10 to 12 years, 
Call it 10 years. We'll leave ourselves two years margin. In the next 10 to 12 years, let's reach 10% of our population, which by the way means we have to reach 10,000 people. If it, if it takes 14.5 to change the community's attitude, we've already got 4,500 more or less along the line with us. Whether or not all of them, I don't know. But to, to, just to make it easy to remember, in the next 10 years, let's reach 10% of our community and in the process see 10,000 people come to know Jesus Christ. You up for it? Before you say yes, you better listen. Because it's going to mean that, yeah, we're going to have to shift some things in ministry. But it means that we're going to, have to be more determined and more committed to our goal than we've ever been in the past. Remember, the goal of this church is to develop devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Those devoted followers of Jesus Christ become more devoted by growing and serving together. And this is about leveraging all that we are and all that we have and all that God could do through us for the sake of those Excuse me, you don't know Jesus Christ. It's quite plain we won't all fit in this building. I get that. But we don't have any plans to go and buy 100 acres on the edge of town or something like that. Seriously, we don't. This is a case that maybe we have other buildings in other places in the city. We may come along churches that are in existence. We may plant some churches. We may do some satellite settings. We, we don't know all the details about that, but I do know this. It's a big task. And I know we can't do it. You go, well, that's nuts, Wayne. Well, it is nuts, this whole idea. To say that we're going to influence a community like Decatur, that we're going to change Decatur's understanding of itself? Well, I believe that God views us differently than how Decatur views itself. But we can't do it. Even if we shoulder in today and say we're going to make this happen. I, this idea, frankly, is so absurd and so out there and so crazily wild. There's only one way this will happen. And that's God can do it. If we can, if we can shoulder our resources together and who we are together and then say, okay, God, here it is. We're, we're, up, we're up for the challenge, but we have to let God do this. I, I've got to tell you, I, I stay, I, I'm sitting here today. Uh, I'm nervous as all get out. I don't get nervous when I preach pretty much anymore. I mean, I get up for it, but I don't get nervous. But you need to know I'm as nervous as all get out today because I can fall flat on my face on this project. And so can this church. As a matter of fact, if you leave it up to me, we'll fall flat on our face. This is a God project and only God can do it. And we don't even know all the full details of it yet. We're going to bring some more details to you next week and the week thereafter. But maybe I could explain it to you this way. You, you know that in Vietnam in, the, in 1973, on, was it 73? In, the, in 1970, anyways, I think it was 73, we, as Americans, called it quits, and we lost that war. We lost the war long before we even got there, to be honest. Do you know why? Among other things, the Vietnamese had, uh, in the 1940s and 1950s, been fighting the French. Vietnam was a French colony, and they didn't want to be a co the Vietnam didn't want to be a colony anymore, and we get that. Colonialism was coming to an end. But the French had a really big army, and... Um, the Vietnamese said, there's no way that we can outgun or outmatch this very big army. And they began to develop a system of guerrilla warfare that was unknown prior to that period of time. Here's what they did. They built a vast array of tunnels underneath their land. And 
The French and the Americans, the Australians, the Kiwis, the New Zealanders all face the same problem. They'd, be, they'd have a force fighting here and they'd be fighting first what was just Vietnamese, then after the French left, the country got divided in half. And so when we got there, we were fighting the Viet Cong and so forth and so on. But nonetheless, you'd have a force here from outside the country, a force inside the country. These guys were totally outmatched in firepower. And just as the battle would take place, they'd disappear and they wouldn't know where they went. Well, they had this tunnel system underneath the ground. They had hospitals down there. They had barracks. They had communication centers. They'd been digging it for years. And so when the fighting would take place, they'd just literally disappear. And then they'd come, come a couple miles, come back around and come the other way. We lost the war because, uh, because of that, among many other reasons, of course. I don't want to generalize it too quickly. But the Americans, the Australians, and the Kiwis said, we've got to do something about this. And they said, we need volunteers who will go down inside those tunnels. They were known as tunnel rats. You familiar with this story? They were usually very small men because some of the tunnels were very small. At least the entrances to them were so they wouldn't be seen easily or found easily from... And when you think about the Vietnamese people were a smaller people, right? More lithe, perhaps, than Westerners. And, and, and so they asked for these small men to volunteer and become tunnel rats. And they would go down inside those tunnel rats, inside those tunnels, and uh, look for enemy forces. Sometimes the tunnels were so small that those men would literally strip down to nothing, go in the tunnels naked, because a lot of the tunnels were booby-trapped, and if they had a belt or a flak jacket or shoes on or something or other, or shoelaces, they might trip a piece of wire. And they would go, sometimes being led into those tunnels, head first with ropes tied to their feet. They would go down naked, armed with three things. A flashlight, a pistol, and great courage. That's all they had. Facing what they didn't know down below. A flashlight, a pistol, and great courage. Now, to bring this home to us today. Uh, in no way, by no means do I want to belittle the great courage that those men had. And I don't think I could do it. I'm not small enough besides. But what I'm telling you about today, there's so much unknown about it that we haven't yet figured out. Not that it's dark, but it's unknown territory that I feel a little bit like those guys. But I'm telling you, the Spirit of God is calling the people of First Christian to go into these places where the darkness is, I feel bad about where I live and where I am, and I'm in the armpit of America. Mm -mm. We're going to go with the light of Jesus Christ. We're going to go with the weapon of the Scripture of God, and we're going to go in the boldness and the courage of the Holy Spirit. We may have to cast off a few things. We may have to become a little more life around here. Some ministries may have to be shed in order to do this. We may have to make some changes. But I, the history of this church is such that we've been able to pull this off in the past, friends, in various degrees. I can't imagine that the group that gathered at called First Christian Church in 1834, down on the grounds that are now the historic, where, the, where the Macon County is, that's where the Macon County Courthouse is. That's the first place where First Christian was. If you want to see our original building, it's out at the airport, what the Lincoln Log House, they call it. That's First Christian Church's building from 1834. I can't imagine that that group of people said, man, we can be a church 180 years from now that's going to look like this. 
But here, if you will, they stand with us. We stand in their stead. If God has been proved to be faithful in all this throughout all these years, do you think God will be faithful for us in the future? Don't we serve a faithful God? We serve a faithful God. That's why we asked Bill and Mark to play Great is Thy Faithfulness during the um, communion today. For us to be reminded of God's faithfulness. As a matter of fact, I'm asking Les to come and lead you now that you've heard the melody and you remember it. To come and lead us as we sing this song together, proclaiming the faithfulness of God. Would you sing with her, please? Pardon for sin. Sing it again, greatest thy faithfulness.
We know that God's a faithful God. I, I, I see you uh, demonstrate that on a regular basis. You know why? Because I see you come to him with prayer requests. And if you didn't believe that God was a faithful God, why bother praying? Right? God can do this. We can't, but God can. In the middle of that series on the presence of God coming back from Israel, we built that replica of the, of the Western Wall and had you put prayer requests in it. Remember that? Like they do in, in Jerusalem. We collated all those prayer requests and it was a stack about that deep. And we took them to uh, the leadership retreat, which was just a couple of weeks later, so that we could pray over them very intentionally and specifically. And we gave them out in packets to the 35 or so people who were in, the, in that meeting in packets like this, and everybody had three or four packets. There were over a thousand requests, pieces of paper in that wall that weekend. And um, everybody prayed over those prayer requests on the Friday night. And I said, one of the things I want you to do is the next morning, I want you to come and give us an, a sense of what you read on those pieces of paper and see if we could come up with some overall need. Uh, the next morning we gathered, and that's my handwriting. That's a photograph of what was on the whiteboard as we listed those prayer requests. And it was, um, frankly, it was an overwhelming sense of there are deep needs in the life of our congregation. And that, that whiteboard sealed the deal for me on this business of reaching our community. Because if that's the needs of a thousand people on one weekend, multiply that by 112,000. If there was ever a reason for us to be people of God who say, we'll take on the task in front of us, that's it right there. Multiply it by 112,000 and you soon get the reason why I'm saying we need to do this, friends. I, I, I want to do this. I want to today mark a line, a seminal moment in the life of this church and say, this is the moment for First Christian Church for the next, for the next 10 to 20 years. That this is what God has called us to do. A seminal sermon, September 13th and 14th, 2014. This is the weekend when we decided we're going to take it on and we're going to do it as a church. And if you, if you call it drawing a line in the sand, I'm doing that. Do you know that saying, draw a line in the sand? It has a very iconic understanding in American history. March 5th, 1836, March 5, 1836, two years after this church was formed. Young man by the name of William Travis, Colonel William Travis, do you know this guy? 26 years old, a Texan lawyer. He wasn't actually a, a military guy, but he ended up in the army unexpectedly, leading a group of soldiers, 190 of them total, in a place called, do you remember? The Alamo, right? And that's where this line, draw, where this, this uh, phrase, draw a line in the sand, comes from in American history. Here's what was going on. He had 189 plus himself, 190 men inside the Alamo. And although he wasn't uh, a brilliant um, military man, he was actually a lawyer. He knew this much about military history. The army on the inside always, always, always loses to the army on the outside. And he only had 190 men versus Mexican General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, who had thousands of men coming against them. He knew they were all going to die. He said, we could surrender, guys, but if we surrender, then there's no way we'll live anyways. We're going to be executed. So I'm asking you, how will we choose to die? This is how we put it. Next screen, guys. We must die. 
Our business is not to make a fruitless effort to save our lives. In other words, we could do all we want, but it ain't going to happen. We're going to die. So we can choose the manner of our death. And he said, I'm drawing this line in the sand. And that's a, a, um, a depiction of drawing that line. And he said, if you're willing to stand and fight with me, if you want to leave, you can. But if you're willing to stand and fight with me, step across the line. He was the first guy to step across the line, 190 men. 188 followed him. Two guys were left behind. <laughs> One guy was a sergeant, injured, laying on a pallet. He said, I can't get up and walk. Will somebody carry me across the line? They had 189 men. One guy chose not to. He wasn't an American. He was a Frenchman. He escaped that night out of the Alamo, made his way through the Mexican lines. And the reason we know this story today is because he escaped to tell it. Every one of those men stood across, stepped across the line and said, I'm giving my everything for this. It's worth it. I'm asking you, friends, are you willing to step across the line with me today and say, we'll take it on. I don't know how we're going to do it yet. We'll lay out some ideas in the next few weeks. But beyond that, we're going we're to lean into God. I got, in some ways, I've got lots more questions than God answers yet today. But the needs of our city say, we've got to do something. I am not content to let Decatur keep calling itself the armpit of central Illinois. Let's change that. Let's call our city to better behavior, better thinking through the power and the restoration and the redemption of Jesus Christ. And if you're up for the challenge, I invite you to pray with me right now. Lord, we got a city that's in deep need. Deep, deep need. We got lots of reasons to say, well, it's nice and pretty the way it is right now for us at First Christian Church and we like who we are and it's cool and we kind of grow a little bit now and then and we have lovely children's programs and all that sort of stuff. God, and it's all true. We like it. It's really sweet to be together. It's really sweet to kind of have this sense of all of us doing life together. But God, the truth of the matter is that we just don't, it's not just for us to do life together, God, that, we're to get, that we are here as a church. It's for the sake of your kingdom. It's for the sake of people who don't know Jesus Christ. Lord, it's for the sake of our community, which has a horrible understanding of who itself. Lord, it's not about economic freedom. It's not about new schools or whatever. That may be the result of all this, but God, help us to change our city by your power and by the work of your Holy Spirit. Guide us in that, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.